You guys are welcome for the nightmares you're gonna have tonight. <laughs> Pretty intense bumper video, fantastic. Uh, perfect timing for where we are in Revelation right now. So um, if you've never been with us to f before, um, if you were here last week, we did our vision service. And by the way, thank you for braving the, uh, the inclement weather to, to make it out this morning. And I'm just joking, right? That's me being facetious. Everyone goes out and buys all the perishable things when they think it's gonna snow, which I'm confused about. Uh, you know, you go to the grocery store and all the milk and eggs and bread are gone. And I'm like, does everyone make French toast when it snows or what? I mean, like, why is all the perishable things? Anyways, um, thank you guys for being here. If you're new to the church, uh, last week we did our vision service. We kind of walked over uh, what, we do as a, what we do as a church, kind of what our goals are, what our vision is for the church, what we think God has told us to do, and talk about our finances and how we're going to get where we want to go and all that good stuff. And so if you're here for that, I'm really, really glad, and I hope that maybe it gave you some clarity about the church. Now, if you've never been here for what we typically do, which is, it's called expository teaching, where we go chapter by chapter, line by line through the Bible, we're back in that now. And um, maybe because I'm a little crazy, I chose to do the Re uh, book of Revelation for the third time, and we are in it, and uh, we're right in the middle of it, and we're in a pretty, a pretty dark part of it. So we're in chapter 14 today, and if you have not been with us through any of the book of Revelation, Chapters 6 through 11 of Revelation tell the story of the seven years of the Great Tribulation, the last seven years before Jesus Christ comes back and the world as we know it ends, okay? And there is judgment and there is rewards for people who have been faithful to Christ. And so chapters 6 through 11 tell that story. Starting in chapter 12, we're going to hear about those same seven years in a different way. The first time we heard about the Great Tribulation, John, the author, was talking from a heavenly vantage point, kind of looking down and telling from up here what the seven years looked like. Now, in chapters 12 through about 18, John is going to tell that story again, but from an earthly perspective, from more of a ground-level perspective of what is going to take place before Jesus comes back. Now, the way this starts in chapter 12 is through this vision. There's a lot of visions in Revelation. We're going to talk about a couple today, but it starts off with this vision, and John sees kind of this cosmic drama, this cosmic play take, out, uh, take place in front of him, and there's this dragon, and there's the son of this woman who is persecuted, and all these different characters are, are, are kind of being developed, and of course, this is telling the story about the tribulation and about Jesus coming back. We went into chapter 13, and a part of the story talks about two different beasts, a beast from the earth and a beast of the sea, the Antichrist. One is a political leader, one is a religious leader. They are run by the devil. So we kind of get this unholy trinity that we talked about in chapter 13. And that the devil never does anything really original, he just kind of mimics God. But it's never as good as God. And that chapter concludes with maybe the most infamous thing in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast, 666. And how we talked about that that is inferior to God, which is perfect, right? His perfect trinity. Now, chapter 14 doesn't start off that bad, but starting at the end of chapter 14 and getting into uh, chapters 15 and 16, I'm just gonna tell you, it gets extremely dark, extremely heavy, extremely dark, and chapter 14 ends in a manner that is very sobering. And so again, it's never my goal to make anyone feel bad. It's never my goal to just scare people or anything like that, but I'll just be honest with you. Chapter 14, the end of it is disturbing. 
And there are parts of the Bible that are intended to be disturbing. And so we're intended to be bothered by some things in the Bible. God wants us to be bothered sometimes because that's the only way that some of us will change. And so at the end of chapter 14, we're gonna be a little disturbed. It's a little bothersome, okay? But it's gonna be all right. If you are following Christ, if you're a humble person, if you're willing to lay yourself down for Jesus, you have nothing in this chapter to be afraid of. If you're not willing to do those things, you have quite a bit to be afraid of in this chapter, okay? So anyways, you should have a notes handout in front of you. It has virtually everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything will be on the screens. Uh, if you wanna follow along, we're in the very last book of the Bible. We're in chapter 14 of the very last book. Of, uh, it's in Revelation. If you have the app, everything is on the app. Click on service times and sermon notes. You get all the scripture. You get everything I'm gonna say. Easy way to follow along, okay? So I'm gonna pray. We're gonna jump into this. I think you'll find it interesting. And again, you'll also find it, like I said, a, a little disturbing, all right? So let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. Father, we just wanna thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for this time of fasting and prayer that our church is in. Thank you, God, for this book of Revelation that so, so bluntly, God, just uh, sobers us up and makes us think about your coming, God. Lord Jesus, I pray that you speak to this church today. I pray, God, that you bless us by your word. I pray that you sharpen us through your word. We pray, Father, that you bless every church in our community. We pray that you bless every great nonprofit in our community. And we pray that everything we do, God, honors you and brings us closer to you, Lord, and that it honors other people as well, God. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you, God. Keep your hand on us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit, and I'll do my best to break it down, okay? Here we go. John says, then I looked, and there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters and the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. They sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, if you were not here for chapter 13, Chapter 13 begins with this imagery of Satan standing on the sands of the sea, sand, okay? We get this, this, this kind of descriptive account in chapter 13 of how Satan is going to use the Antichrist and his sidekick, this religious leader, and he's going to wage war against the people of God. So chapter 13 is kind of all about the devil. Chapter 14 is the opposite. It's a contrast it's God's plan. It's what God is going to do. So chapter 14 is kind of the spoiler alert of this epic drama. God is going to pull back the curtains and let John know who wins and that it's going to take place. And he's going to show him how it's going to take place. And the only advice that is given to the reader of this chapter is be patient. It's going to happen. Good is going to win. Be patient. Hold on. 
So if you've been with us, this 144,000, we've talked about this group before. In chapter seven, we talked about a group of 144,000. There's a couple of possibilities. This could be a Jewish remnant of people. This could possibly be the martyrs coming out of the great tribulation. Whomever they are though, they show up again and it appears that they are in heaven with God in a glorified state, which means they have crossed over to the other side. Not only that, it appears that this 144,000 is ready for battle. And we'll get to that later. There's going to be a battle and they are ready to engage in it. Now, more than likely, this 144,000 is a different 144,000. This is what's called a round number, which means it's just symbolic. It's not a precise number. So it probably symbolizes all the people who have given their life to Christ over all the centuries. And they are standing on Mount Zion with God and they are there in heaven. Now, Zion is not like a matrix reference or anything like that. This is an ancient name. Matrix, right? You guys have seen them. Okay, just making sure, right? Zion is an ancient name for heaven. That's mentioned in Hebrews. And the image of God and his followers on a mountain directly contrasts Satan on sand. We know that you cannot build a foundation on sand. It will crumble. But you can build a foundation on a rock, a mountain. So you see this contrast of the one who's going to lose and the one who is going to win. We also see the volume or hear the volume, if you will, in Revelation. If you've been with me through Revelation as we've been talking about, there's a lot of sounds in Revelation. There's, of course, a lot of sights, but there's also a lot of sounds. And as John sees Jesus on Mount Zion, he says, it sounds like cascading waters it sounds like thunder. It sounds like hundreds of thousands of people playing musical instruments as they're celebrating. So these sounds, they come from the redeemed people of God and they are singing and they are praising because they're saved and they're singing and they're praising because they know that they're about to go into battle, but they already know that they're going to win the battle. So they're celebrating and making a lot of noise, okay? Now, it says that they sang a new song. Again, if you've been with us for Revelation, there's been multiple songs. We've read the lyrics of multiple songs throughout the book of Revelation. Here, we don't have the lyrics for this song. It doesn't tell us because it's a song specifically for them. We don't know this song. Only they know it. And so some people are led to believe that this is a certain group of saved people, maybe the martyrs from the Great Tribulation because they kind of have this exclusive song. But whatever this song represents, this song is sung before God, it's sung before the elders and the angels that are flying around the throne, and all of that is mentioned in chapter four, if you weren't here. You should go back and read that chapter, beautiful chapter. Now, these 144,000, it also says that they were not defiled. Now, the Bible uses a weird twist on gender right here. It starts off by saying, but these are people that have not defiled themselves with women. So instantly we're like, okay, this is men who have remained sexually pure. But then it kind of turns and it says that they're virgins. Now I know men can be virgins, but biblically, whenever it refers to virgins, it's always referring to women. So what is going on here? More than likely, it's not actually talking about sexual purity or sexual immorality, though it could include that. More than likely, it's talking about spiritual adultery that we as Christians, we're the bride, we're married to our husband, Jesus, and what has happened is, is these are people who have not cheated on their spiritual husband. 
They have remained faithful to their husband, Jesus, and they have not committed spiritual adultery. So it's probably more of a metaphor than it is literally talking about sex. It also says that they're blameless. When John says these people are blameless, though, he's not implying that they've never sinned. All people have fallen short. What he is implying is, is that they are redeemed. Redeemed means that once you are captive to something, sin in this case, and you have been pulled out of that captivity, you've been set free. So these people had, had been slaves to sin, but because they repented, because they choose to follow the lamb wherever he goes, they have become recipients of God's grace. God has erased the things that they have done wrong out of their book of life, and they are now blameless in front of him. Okay? All right. So far, not too bad. Long part here. Be patient with me. He says, Then I saw an angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She has made all the nations drink with her, drink her wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Another angel, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance of the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. We'll touch on that. That's important. So again, if you've been with us for Revelation, angels delivering messages is nothing new. We've seen this a lot in Revelation. Now, these three angels, though, are a little unique. They're not offering a message directly to John. They are offering a message for all humanity. They were warning the earth that the end is near. If you were with us for chapter eight, we saw one of these angels. Flies overhead and says, whoa, 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 which means catastrophe, catastrophe, catastrophe. Trying to warn the inhabitants of the earth that bad things are coming if they don't repent. So the first angel says, delivers the eternal gospel to the inhabitants of the earth. This message is urgent, and it is spoken with a loud voice. And here's what he calls people to do. He says, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Unfortunately, we, I'm talking about our generation, we have created a culture that does not fear God. I'm talking about within the church. 
We don't fear God within the church. We've kind of made Jesus to be like this herbal tea drinking hippie that just like turns a blind eye to anything bad, right? I don't see that. I just love you, right? We, we kind of have this Jesus. Now, here's the thing about love. You cannot have perfect love without perfect justice. And because there is evil in the world, a perfect loving God has to deal with that injustice and with that evil, and he is going to. So is God love? Absolutely. There is also wrath in God. He gets angry at evil, and he will deal with evil. The second angel continues the same proclamation, the gospel. But this second angel also mentions Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great has fallen. Now, if you have studied the Bible much, from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we hear of a city called Babylon. And Babylon comes up all throughout the Bible. Babylon was kind of the Mecca of evil. It was not just a city, it was a culture. It was the antithesis to God. So we get this imagery that this city or this culture has fallen. And the imagery is exactly the opposite of the virgins that were undefiled. These people weren't spiritual virgins. They were drunk on sexual immorality. Now that can probably be literal and metaphorical. We are the most hypersexual culture that has probably ever existed. Everything is sexual. And that's not just the United States, that's all around the globe. If you travel the world, it is hypersexual everywhere. And we have become intoxicated on sex. It's probably again a metaphor that we have not only worshiped other gods, we have become intoxicated by worshiping other things besides Jesus Christ. That's what this culture or maybe this city has done, Babylon, but it has fallen. The third angel pronounces doom to anyone who receives the mark of the beast. And he says, if you've gotten drunk off the immoral ways of Babylon, this culture, if you've gotten drunk off this culture, you're also gonna drink God's wine and that is gonna be wrath. And look at what it says, full strength. Imagine that for a second. If God can create this entire universe like that, think about the full strength of his anger, the full strength of God's wrath. Now again, modern Christianity, we don't wanna talk about that, right? We just wanna hug each other and pastors don't wanna talk about God's wrath or discipline because that's not, that's not what fills up the tithing bowls, right? They wanna tell you good things. Everything's okay, you're okay, I'm okay. Just smile, come to church, everything's okay. But this angel, these three angels are telling us we've got to make some changes. And if we don't, we will experience the wrath of God. It gets even worse. Not only will evil people experience God's anger, we will be eternally separated from God. And it says we will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the angels and the sight of Jesus forever and ever and ever. What does that mean? It means that hell is real. And I'm bothered by how many Christians nowadays don't believe that hell is a real place. Now I know what you skeptics are saying. When Jesus talked about hell in the gospels, he was referring to an area called Gehenna on the, outside, uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And you're correct. But he was referring to this place where they would murder children for false gods and burn trash as a metaphor for this place. And so in the book of Revelation, it's not talking about Gehenna. It is talking about an eternal separation from God. 
a place of mental anguish and a place of physical anguish, a place of perpetual unrest. You ever gone three days without sleeping? Every mom in here is like, duh, right? Yeah. If you've gone three days without sleeping or four days without sleeping, you know how terrible that is. Imagine an eternity without rest, an eternity of never getting to rest, this separation from God. But here's the thing. These angels say, you don't have to be separated from God. He says, if you will have endurance, if we will keep God's commands, not only will we avoid hell, but we inherit heaven. Look at the contrast in verse 13. Those that deny Christ suffer forever, but those who die in the name of the Lord will rest from their labors. And it says that your works follow them. Another thing I'm bothered about with Christians, well, works don't mean anything. According to the Bible, they do. Your works will follow you into the next life. So some things do carry over. We often say you can't take it with you. Now that's true about your house. It's true about your car. It's true about your money. You cannot take those things with you. But what you do in this life, your character, who you bring to Christ, how you live your life, the righteous things you do, carry over into eternity. And because our diligence now we're no longer in labor for eternity. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to heaven and we're just like chilling out on a sofa for forever. That's not what heaven is like. There's going to be a form of work in heaven. What this means is labor pains. The pain, like a woman, that, that what she goes through when she gives birth, that kind of pain will no longer exist. There will be no more crying. There will be no more starvation. There will be no more war or hatred or racism or abuse or any of the awful things that happen in this life. We will be free of those pains in the life to come, okay? All right, next part. John says, then I looked and there was a white cloud and one like the son of man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the throne. Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one who seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So again, remember, we're watching kind of an epic drama, or John is, but he's telling us about it, okay? The sixth and seventh visions of this epic drama are about a harvest, now, Jesus talked a lot about agriculture. He talked about wheat and tares. He talked about planting seeds. He talked about vineyards. He talked about fields. He talked about farmers. He talked a lot about agriculture. And now we see why he talked so much about agriculture. Because at the end of time, he is going to harvest people. The whole earth is going to be the field that God is going to harvest from. Now, it says that Jesus came on a white cloud. If you go back to chapter one, it says this, that he's gonna come back in the clouds. Now that's actually translated as atmosphere. So however that looks, it may not be like a fluffy white cloud that Jesus is riding down on, but this kind of atmosphere. And John describes him seated on a cloud with a golden crown, and here, this is important, a sharp sickle. The reason why it was sharp is because uh, uh, someone who works the ground, who, who, who harvests the wheat, would sharpen that when he is ready to go out and do his job. 
So clouds represent majesty. The sharp sickle indicates that God is ready to do what he's going to do. And harvest time was also a time to store up things, to put them away for safekeeping, okay? So all these things kind of play in to what is about to happen. So as Jesus is holding a sharp sickle, an angel comes out of the temple from heaven and he tells Jesus what to do. Now, this is interesting. This angel says, Jesus, use your sickle and harvest, reap from the earth. Now, why in the world would Jesus take an order from an angel? That doesn't mean that the angel is superior to him or anything like that. We probably get some clarity from the gospels. When Jesus said, no one knows when I will return, not even me, that's what Jesus said. So I'm gonna use this, this terminology carefully, but in Jesus's intentional ignorance, he did not know when he was going to return. So possibly he told this angel, hey, let me know, and I'm gonna go out and do this. So this angel comes out, and now it is time. The end is coming, okay? And he is going out to do what he's supposed to do. Now, what is this harvest? There's three possibilities, and I'm gonna tell you all three of them, and where you land on this is completely up to you. Some believe this is a rapture. Now, if you believe this is the rapture, this would be called a post-tribulation, tribulation has already happened, post-tribulation pre-wrath rapture. So it falls between the tribulation and the rapture, okay? Or I'm sorry, uh, God's wrath. So it could be a rapture. It could also be a completion of the martyrs on earth during the great tribulation. That when God swings his sickle, not that he is killing people, but all the people who follow him are martyred and they are brought home via martyrdom, okay? Here's the thing. People are always arguing in Revelation, where is the second coming of Christ? Now, you've heard me say this before, but I'm gonna say it again. The book of Revelation is not there so you can try to figure out exactly where the second coming is. The book of Revelation is there to make sure you are prepared for it. When it comes is irrelevant. The question is not when, it's going to happen. The question is, are you ready for Jesus to come back? Are we ready to go through the things that I believe we're gonna go through before he comes back? Are we prepared? That's the question we need to hang on. The third option is this, is that when he swings his sickle, it's not a rapture, it's not martyrdom, but it is a completion of all the people who are going to follow Jesus. Okay, so all the people who would give their life to Christ have given their life to Christ. Now, no one else is going to convert. Now, Matthew 24, 14 mentions something like this. Jesus says, I will come back when everyone who has accepted me has accepted me. That's when I'll come back, okay? So what this is, it's not largely important. Again, we just need to make sure we're prepared for that first harvest. Now, here's where it gets a little dark, Okay. Then another angel, who also had a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to the angel who had the sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle and gather the cluster of grapes from the vineyard of the earth, because the grapes have ripened. So the angel swung his sickle at the earth, and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into a great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to a horse's bridle. 
for about 180 miles. So this is the curtain call. The first harvest is the harvest of Christians, the people who follow Christ. They are out of the picture by the time the second harvest takes place. The first harvest was described as a grain harvest. If you know anything about agriculture, which I know very little, but you find out that grain is harvested first and then vineyards, grapes, are harvested second. So God is about to close this epic drama. And as we get into chapter 15 and 16 next week, it is exceptionally violent, exceptionally gruesome. So now it's not Jesus holding the sickle, it's an angel. And another angel comes out of the temple and calls to the other angel holding the sickle, gather the grapes because they've ripened. Their time is done. What he is essentially saying is all of these people who have lived in evil, God's had enough. He is finished and this is not Jesus swinging it this time. This is an angel. And he is going to gather these evil people into one spot and they are going to be crushed. Just like wine, uh, just like grapes are crushed in a wine press. If you've ever seen that, it's actually pretty gross. They put all these grapes in this huge wine press and people get in there and they will stomp barefoot on all these grapes and then the juice, which is still all gooey and clumpy and all this stuff flows out of the side of these wine presses. This is the analogy that John is using for what's about to take place. Now, we don't know the time between the first harvest and the second harvest. We don't know exactly how long. We don't know how long as we get into chapter 15 and 16, how quick the bowls of God's wrath are going to take place. But it looks like in verse 19 that I read to you that he is setting up the bowls of wrath. And then in verse 20, John is setting up the last battle between good and evil that is gonna be called Armageddon. Though we don't know the exact chronology, we can assume that it is extremely quick because as we get into chapter 15 and 16, these things could not, humanity could not live long when God starts to pour out his wrath. So more than likely, the first and second harvest in chapter 15 and 16 happen extremely rapidly, very, very quickly. So John has shown this gruesome imagery, this imagery of people gathered and trampled by God, crushed by God. Now, who are these people? These are the ones who have denied God. These are the ones who have put themselves first, their desires first. These are people who have lived lifestyles contradictory to what the Bible wants them to live, evil lifestyles. These are the people who will be trampled by God. And it happens outside the city. Now, it's interesting. Some people think that's just a metaphor because vineyards were always outside of the city. But more than likely, this is referring to the countryside, an area called Megiddo, which is north of Jerusalem. If you get on my Facebook, a guy named Art Kelly, who comes to church here, posted a picture of him standing on a mountain looking at this valley. And you can see where most theologians believe this last battle is going to take place. But we will get into that in a couple of chapters from now, okay? But it says that blood flowed out of this press. Again, the imagery, if you really think about it, is extremely violent. Think about enough carnage that would stack up to the bridle of a horse for 180 miles. And now again, that's probably a hyperbole, maybe a, a slight exaggeration, but John is trying to show you there's going to be tremendous carnage, tremendous bloodshed during this last battle between God and evil humanity. Here's what we learn, though, at the end of chapter 14, this very violent imagery we see that unaddressed sin 
will come to an extremely destructive end. Unaddressed evil will come to an extremely destructive end. Now, here's where we get real. I want to tell you first and foremost, guys, from, a, from, from someone who's lived 39 years and made a tremendous amount of mistakes, every single sin that we commit has a measure of consequence. All of them. If you're promiscuous and you contract HIV, and I'm not trying to be mean, you can repent and God will forgive you, but there is still a price to pay. If you become a liar, if you cheat, even though God will forgive liars and forgive cheaters, we have broken relationships. There's a consequence to pay. Every single sin we do, even the sins done to us, if someone has abused you or taken advantage of you, even if they have been forgiven, there's an insecurity. There's things that are, that are birthed inside of people because of the sin that has been done to them. There is always a measure of consequence for sin. And we talk so much in church. I don't wanna be ashamed. I don't wanna feel guilty. Well, then let's deal with the sin because those things are a result of sin. And so we have somehow dumbed dumb down or, or somehow neglected the topic of sin. We don't wanna talk about it. And we are feeling the consequences of the decisions we make. Now here's the thing, not only does every sin have some form of consequence that is tied to it, even if God forgives you, we cannot take for granted just how dark it can get if we do not get a grip on our sin. I tell this story all the time. You guys are probably sick of hearing it, those of you who have been coming to this church for a while. But there was a young man that when he was a kid bought a Playboy magazine. Soft core pornography, right? Started reading, I guess one doesn't really read Playboy, but started looking at Playboy. Moved from Playboy to buying more graphic pornography, magazines back in that time. Started buying videos of pornography, got addicted to that. Started watching very violent pornography. Then this young man who was attractive, had money, he was actually a politician, started to go out and pick up prostitutes. That wasn't enough, so he started picking up prostitutes and he would beat them. And then eventually he killed one. Then eventually he killed 60. And after Ted Bundy finally got caught, he had at least 60 women that he had murdered. And it all started off by looking at a Playboy magazine. How do we know that? Because the day before he died, he was interviewed and that's exactly what he said. It all started off. Now he was actually forgiven. He became a Christian but there's a consequence. And if we are not careful, we will flirt with little sins here and before you know it, you are drowning. You have no idea how dark it can get. No idea. Now the sin that goes unrepented for not only will have a consequence in this life, it will have an eternal consequence. And guys, I wanna tell you, God is only going to take so much of us. He's only going to take so much selfishness and idolatry, and hatred, and sexual immorality. According to the Bible, he's only going to take so much and then he's done. And we don't like to talk about that in church, but I feel like some of us keep pressing God and one day we're gonna press him so far that he's gonna have enough. And there's going to be a harvest and we're gonna have to answer for the things that we've done. Now here's the thing, we don't have to be in that camp. We don't have to be in that second harvest. Our dedication and our love for God also has an effect. 
an eternal effect. The things that we do to honor God don't just stay in this life, they resonate into the next life. How you treat your spouse, how you raise your children, how you treat your neighbor, how you honor God with how you live, your dedication to the word of God in prayer. These things resonate, they echo, we're rewarded for those things. We carry those on into the next life. So what we have to do, every single one of us in this room, is every single day, we have to consciously choose to put ourselves aside. John the Baptist said, less of me, more of him. Less of me, more of him. Jesus said, when you walk into the banquet, sit at the low side so you'll be elevated. Make it less about yourself and more about him. Every day we have to consciously put ourselves down and deny ourselves. Every day we have to follow Jesus. We have to choose to follow him every day. And every single day we have to consciously choose to pour into those around us, our spouses, our children, our neighbors, our schools, the people who are around us, our friends, our family. We've got to consciously do this. Why? And my God, I hope someone listens to me today. As unpopular of a thing as this is to talk about, especially in a big old mega church, one day there will be a harvest. In Revelation chapter 20, it says that one day we will all be judged and God will break open the book of our lives and he will go down every single deed. Now listen, if you are repentant, if you have asked God to forgive you of your sins and if you have chosen to step away from that sin, you got nothing to fear about that book because all the things that you've asked for forgiveness for and turned away from, they're erased from the book. You have nothing to be afraid of. But let me warn some of you in this room. If there's a secret sin in your heart, God sees it. If there is something you do it, you're doing right now and you think no one else knows, you've escaped everyone else, God sees it. And one day, you and I will have to stand in front of him and we will be held accountable for everything that we've done. We will be held accountable. Is this meant to scare you? A little bit. It should scare you a little bit. To be on the wrong side of God should be terrifying. It should strike fear into your heart. And if it doesn't, I pray, listen, I pray that God disturbs you. I pray that God shakes you, rattles your cage however he has to do it. Because I would rather you be disturbed now than have to stand in front of your maker and give an account for the evil in your heart. I pray that some of you are listening this morning. Here's the beauty of all this though. We come into this place and you don't have to be in this place to repent for your sins and turn from evil. But we come into this place and we end every single service with communion. A reminder, a reminder that God is good. A reminder that God sent his son to pay the price so none of you should have to experience wrath. So none of you should have to experience the second harvest. But we become so busy and we become so numb to our sin. Maybe some of you today need to say, God, 
Show me, disturb me. If I am doing something that is contradictory to what you want me to do, reveal that to me. But if we will just say, God, I'm sorry. And if we will take the steps to walk away from that sin, you have nothing to be afraid of. Nothing, nothing. So here's what I wanna invite you to do. Greg or Dave, Dave, Dave's gonna be up here to my right, your left. If you are in this room and maybe you're not a Christian and hearing this today has maybe kind of gotten your attention, come up here and talk to Dave. He can help you, he can show you some steps, he can pray with you. There will also be men and women on both sides if you need prayer for anything. Now here's the last thing, listen. There is no reason, there is no reason anyone in this room should leave this room being afraid of the end. Because we have the opportunity together to ask God to forgive us of our sins, to go and take the bread and the wine and to sit and remember that God is good and that his blood has paid for our freedom. And if we will just humble ourselves, say, God, please forgive me, and we remember what he's done, you're good, you're good. Turn from that evil, build a relationship with him, and you have nothing to be afraid of. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, with all sincerity, I pray that you disturb us this morning. Lord, even if we are saved, God, disturb us that maybe our neighbor is not saved. Even if we're saved, God, disturb us if our children don't know you, or our spouse doesn't know you, or our friends at school don't know you. God, Lord, let that bother us. Father, we know you're gracious, Lord. Let us be humble enough to approach you. Let us be humble enough to, to fall down at your feet and ask for your help. Remind us, God, that you are loving, you are good, but Lord, that you hate evil. Father, Lord, for anyone who has questions, Lord, please let them be humble enough to come up here and ask. For anyone that needs prayer, God, please, Lord, let them be humble enough to get prayer. God, for all of us who are gonna take communion, Father, Lord, let us remember how big of a deal that is. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you, God. It's in your son's name that we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.